0: Yep, you really do just need a humble smartphone and some minimal extra gear that doesn't have to break the bank to get started with field recording. And I've laid it all out in this handy five-point checklist. So download it for free at femalediymusician.com forward slash learn with Isabel and elevate your music to the next level.
1: So I would leave the hotel room and I remember vividly putting one foot in front of the other forcing myself to walk to the venue because as soon as I got in the door of the venue I had no choice like there was a team of people there and I had to react you know follow one step after another one thing after another get through the sound check get through the gig once I hit the venue I knew things would roll on come hail or high water and I would get through it and at 1 a.m when I had a beer in my hand that was going to be the end of the day but the steps to the venue, That was the point at which I had to literally put my foot one foot in front of the other. No one was going to get me to the venue and no one was going to stop me if I ran away.
0: Hello and welcome to Girls Twiddling Knobs. My name's Isabel and over the last decade, my self-produced and self-released music has amassed over 25 million Spotify streams. I also have a PhD in Sonic Arts, but I wasn't always this confident with music tech. In fact, I still hear those self doubt gremlins in my head from time to time. I started this podcast to help more female identifying musicians start recording and producing their music and learn from other women making music with technology. If that's your cup of tea, then you're in the right place, my friend. Let's dive in. Well, hello, Knob Twiddlers. I hope that wherever you're listening from, you are safe and well. And as I record this episode of the podcast from my home in Hastings, we've gone into another lockdown. We're in D 3 and you can't sugarcoat it. It does feel pretty shit. Um, The other night I was lying in bed having a real case of existential angst. Um, Just this kind of awful feeling of crap being laid on top of more crap. But... There's still um, things to hope for and hopeful green shoots coming up um, here and there. Um, And I do, one of those green shoots is reading your comments and reviews of the podcast. It really does brighten up my day. Thank you so, so much to everyone who's rated and reviewed the podcast. And so I thought I'd do a quick little listener shout out again. So this is from Gabster Music Chick, and she writes... Just what I've been waiting for. This is such an important podcast to be out in the world. Thank you, Isabel, for bringing all this brilliant wisdom to my ears. Well, thank you so much, Gabster R Music Chick. I am so thrilled that you're enjoying the podcast. And it means so, so much to me to know that you're listening. Uh, You will receive an invisible cuddly toy in the imaginary post. And if you're listening now and thinking, I want a listener shout out from Isabel... All you have to do is rate and review the podcast on iTunes or the Apple podcast app and your review also really helps to get in front of even more women and girls too. Now today I am so excited to bring you a conversation I had with an amazing electronic artist, Una Monaghan. And we recorded this chat right at the beginning of the first lockdown in April of 2020 And so it's only just being shared with you now. It's actually, I think it's the first interview I ever did for the podcast. And Una is a harpist, composer, performer, and sonic artist from Belfast who blends traditional music with electronics. And as you'll find out in our chat together, she is particularly comfortable with um, being live on stage and she also engineers other musicians live too. Now, me and Una met at Belfast's Sonic Arts Research Centre, and since gaining her PhD in 2015 from there, Una went on to become a Rosamond Harding Research Fellow at Newham College, University of Cambridge, from 2016 to 19. And she's also a founding member of Fair Play, a movement working for gender equality in traditional music. So there's a lot we could have talked about. But what emerged was a fascinating conversation about vulnerability, honesty, and creative self-esteem with a lady who is quite clearly at the top of her game. So, Una, thank you so much for being on the Girls' Twiddling Knobs podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have to confess,
1: I don't love the name. Like, you don't like that? I, d- I don't know. Like, it's it's funny. But also, I, like, I don't... It and it conjures up the image of a knob, like, and, yes, and so and so. I kind of like like the idea of us doing this without any reference to the knobs. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. I'm I'm the worst uh, inventor of names for anything, like pieces, uh, projects, anything. I try not to make up the names. Yeah. <laughs> just complain yeah. about other
0: people <laughs> <laughs> no I mean I uh I was kind of playing with lots of different names and that one stuck out as the most kind of I don't know light-hearted and catchy but um who knows it yeah, may evolve it's the
1: best way it's the best way to approach the subject as well light-hearted because there's a lot of seriousness
0: yeah and um, and it can be what stops people starting real. totally totally yeah absolutely okay well um with that being said how how did you get started Una can you take us um, what attracted you to music technology in the first place I guess the truth is
1: I don't know if I, it's not it's not the best answer but I don't know why I started I just know that I was was interested in it before I had any access to it which is interesting um I I wanted. I liked the idea of using it, of of the tactility of it, because at that time I thought, you know, it would be thing, it, it was something that required hardware, pieces of equipment, things you could plug in. Um, but I didn't have any of that, so I don't know where that came from. I do know that one of the first times I became aware of music technology things to to be used outside of the acoustic instrument was when I played in a harp orchestra. The Belfast Harp Orchestra used to tour when I was very young. And um, I was on a UK tour with them when I was about 13. And I remember we we played quite big venues, classical venues, and one of them was the Birmingham Symphony Hall. And I remember that we all had a pickup on our harp. That was exciting for a start because something was attached to the harp and you went home from rehearsal then with this pickup attached and there were two points where it hit the soundboard so it was it was inside the soundboard of inside the belly of the harp and attached to the soundboard at the back so you couldn't see it from the front of the harp it was a secret piece of tech that was now in my instrument that I could bring home and that was exciting and then when you got to the tour and this was plugged in you each of the harp players played individually there were 25 harps on stage And the engineer would ask us to play on our own. So we only had these small parts, as musical parts, as part of the whole. So you never really felt like a soloist, certainly not at my age. And the the role I had in the orchestra, I was playing quite simple arrangements um, for the youngest people in in the orchestra. And so when you were asked to play on your own, well, firstly, that was a novelty on this stage, you know, because you weren't going to play a solo on the stage, you were in an orchestra got to play on your own, and then he did something that changed your sound from the acoustic harp, which is what happened for the first few notes, until he increased the game at the desk and sent this out through the live hall. And this was a mm. massive hall. So your sound suddenly grew, and it wasn't just the amplitude of it, it wasn't just the level was, was raised. It changed from the location of the sound changed for me. So one minute it was coming from the harp, which attached to your body and suddenly it filled the space so it was coming from lots more locations it was a lot louder it had a different sound quality and so that that moment when that changed happened I just remember thinking "Wow, that's a to do that like that suddenly was a, a a powerful thing and a really interesting thing and I think at that point I thought well I'd like to be in control of that I'd like to be able to change sound in that way and uh, it was it was only many many years later that I ever had the chance to do it but it stayed there and even when I started to do it I I didn't do a music degree I did a physics degree and then I came back to Belfast and the Sonic Orchard Research Centre had just opened so I, 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 I managed to do a year of a master's degree there in sound art in 2005 and i just remember thinking this is my year for me i'm going to do, do use this year to learn about music and sign technology and then after that i'll go and get a job like i'm supposed to so it for me it was a year that i was it was my fulfillment of that promise to myself when i was 13 this is my year mm. of my
0: interest and stuff and then i'll go back to school or work or whatever it was i'm mm. supposed to do um, wow so it really was like a, like a holiday almost from what you were supposed to be doing with your life.
1: Yeah, but I, that wasn't defined either, the supposed to be. You know, it was just, I figured this wasn't necessarily what I was supposed to be. I, I didn't really have an idea of what the correct thing was. But I think for me, it was that instead of doing something that was difficult that I had to overcome, that I had to force myself to make an effort to do, I was going to spend a year doing something I really wanted to do mm. um, and add to that the level that although it was an academic course and there was money to pay and grades to be got I said to myself that I was going to try like I did in everything but I wasn't going to make the grades the main point for me it was mm. more interested. if it was a choice between doing something that got the higher mark and doing something that made me learn about the the work or or create or something then I was going to go with what I wanted rather than mm. what I was going to get the hairmark. mark so it was a bit of a change in priority for me and it was deliberate. yeah
0: yeah and that's I mean that is absolutely the best attitude I think to have with any course but especially in MA where you're like you say you're kind of expanding your knowledge and it should be about what you want to explore rather than yeah. getting a grade yeah.
1: But the reality is that that's rarely the case, you know it's a privilege if that is or it's a luxury if that if you're able to put yourself in that position because yeah. I think definitely for my undergraduate degree, depending on what your background is and where you're coming from and what the stakes are and what rests on that and this can be financial or it can be expectation or it can be cultural mm. you know it 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 was. It was, I felt lucky to decide, and I also felt short lived. Mm. You know, it didn't feel like you could go through life with that being your only priority forever because certain things need to be in place for you to be able to put exactly what you want first. And for me, I thought, I haven't been able to till now. I'm going to take this time to do it, but I'm pretty sure it's not going to last very long. So Mm. there's a realism there, and I do know that that's not possible for everybody.
0: Mm, yeah yeah absolutely I think that's a really good point and to be clear you did your undergrad at Cambridge didn't you
1: I did yeah Yeah. Um, and you know I had a loan and, yeah. and the masters degree actually you know I, I, I didn't have the money to do it I an aunt, my auntie I was just standing in her kitchen one day and I would finished my undergraduate degree and she says well what are you going to do now and I says well I'm a bit stumped I know what I'd love to do but I don't have the I think it was £3,000 at the time to do the, to pay the fees, and she said, "Well, I'll lend it." That was an auntie you know. Yeah, there was, yeah. this, I knew that I wanted to pay her back, uh, but at the time she was able to say, "Take that," and I was yeah. able to take, knowing that if I couldn't, it wouldn't be the end of the world, or if I was slow to pay it back, yeah, and I wasn't going to take a bank loan to do that. No, but if it was being offered to me, then that's how I started, and you know. If I hadn't, if I hadn't had that offer at the time, I don't, I don't think I'd be doing this now.
0: Mm, yeah, that's fantastic, and I'm sure that it meant a lot to her to be able to help you like that. For sure. I
1: don't know, like I, I think she, she does enjoy. Uh, she, she's a brilliant person and really yeah. interested in, in everything. So, uh, I was really grateful.
0: Mm, fantastic. Um so from what you said you know it sounds like you were from an early age really interested in the kind of the physicality of electronic music as much as the you know the kind of conceptual theoretical side of it you you were drawn to the the mechanical physical stuff
1: yeah um i mean i i, I was really interested in in the equipment as well mm-hmm. but um, i only really i was only able to use that equipment when i when I had a way in with this master's, I did do a week's work experience at a, at a studio Mm -hmm. when I was 17. That was another situation where um, the school asked you to sort your work experience. And I was doing science subjects at the time uh, with music. And so the expectation was if you'd good grades that you would maybe look at medicine or that your work experience would be, in a structured environment and the guidance that we were given was you know you still have to get up at eight in the morning report for work dress you know and something that's suitable for business but I thought to myself if on after school if I want to do these things and I apply for them you know I might get them so it's not as easy to get into a recording studio you can't look up and apply for a course Mm -hmm. or you can't you can't, you know, you don't know so many people are going to let you in there. There are these other schemes like take your daughter to work day. You could get me into looking in an office in the civil service or, you know, I think I did institute of directors that was going to get me to, I think I went to the Harbour commissioner's office in Belfast, but the recording studio, I thought, well, if, if I can write a letter and spend a week somewhere, this is where I'm going to do it. But the issue then was that, well, they weren't starting work at eight in the morning. So I said, can I come over for the week? And the guy goes, yeah. And I said, so I'll be there at eight. And he said, hell no. He was like, don't show up here before two in the afternoon. All the rest of my friends were out at eight in the morning going to whatever office they were work experiencing at. And I would have loved to have gone up and coiled the cables for the morning, but he wasn't Mm. awake. So
0: wow god that's so that is so mature of you to know that you needed to go to a studio for work experience i literally for my work experience when i was 16 i left it right till the last minute and then got a week's work experience at new look because i just had not thought about it at all so you are putting my work experience to shame una with you being so (laughs) forward thinking that's so good that shows so much foresight um so (laughs) but that's wonderful like did you enjoy it what was it like doing that week I absolutely loved it um
1: it was it was in Randallstown it was about I don't know maybe half an hour to 40 minutes outside Belfast and with no car so I was on a bus up there and I was kind of at the mercy of the bus timetables so I would arrive at two o'clock as discussed and sometimes i'd have to wait outside until they were like oh god here's this student and let me in and then it was him and his mate and then once they started started mixing like it was mud wallace uh in homestead studios like they they were some of the foremost mixers of folk and traditional music at the time but other musics too and uh You know, once they started then they would do a full day's work, but it was it was going to end somewhere in the small hours and I was sixteen like and I had to get the last bus back to Belfast, which left at six at night. So I only really got four hours a day out of it, which was so frustrating for me. And again, it's not like I knew anything, so I couldn't really help. Mm. So he'd be like, Right, we're going for a tea break here and I didn't really want to sit about with older guys talking about you know it really I mean there was conversations there where I didn't know where to look and Mm. I didn't mind not knowing where to look, it was more that I felt like I was making them uncomfortable because mm. they couldn't talk about or be in their normal day's work because they had a sixteen-year-old mm. girl sitting there looking at them. So <laughs> at those points, I would say, "Do you mind if I go back into the studio?" And I would literally start to clean up. Mm. Like there were cups everywhere, and there was cables everywhere, and there was sticky things, and I just thought, "Look at these hooks all over the wall." And <laughs> no rhyme or reason to these cables so I started to <laughs> try and coil them and put and organize them and yeah. through that I kind of got I didn't know what any of them did and I was never really I wasn't shown anything that I could remember or because I had no, none of the equipment myself but I loved the smell of the place and the potential mm. of it even though I couldn't really do anything myself.
0: Mm. Oh, I, yeah, it was
1: a like, stereotype where I was either cleaning up the dishes or yeah. making
0: tea. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know about you, but whenever I find myself in those situations, starting to do that, I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ, Isabel, like, you're being mum. Stop being mum. And you'll find it in bands, and you'll find it when you're in the studio, and you end up, yeah, you'll, like, gravitate towards cleaning things up, or organising things, or checking in people emotionally, how they're feeling. you yeah, but I mean, you know?
1: it depends. I think I have, from an early age, quite a sense of when that was going to serve me or not. Like, I'm all right to play, mum, if the people aren't acting like my kids. Yeah. You know, or, yeah. or if in this case that I knew that there was a hell of a lot more I was going to learn from going in there and getting the cops and calling the cables than sitting listening to them talking about what happened last <laughs> night. Yeah, absolutely. Was, you know? So. So I think I had my head screwed on that way as well. Um, I love that. Were, I love how oh, you
0: describe that, Una. Sorry to interrupt. I just don't want to skirt over that. I don't mind playing mum as long as they're not acting like my kids. I think that's <laughs> perfect. <laughs> that's such a good way to so, think
1: about it. They were so great as well. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I'd walked to the guy and said, can I come up? But I'm sure it was the last thing he wanted. Yeah. You know, me sitting about either. And he was so supportive. Um, oh, and even after that you know I could have rung and said can I come up and watch or whatever Um, that's what you need you need people and not everyone was but I I can name three guys Mm. who in my in the course of my development as an engineer Mm. always listened helped said yes when I asked for stuff Mm. Um, and
0: you're grateful for that Mm, absolutely, yeah, that's great. Okay, cool. So so we've kind of got this picture of young Una and um she's done her week in the studio. Um, and then you do your degree and then you do your MA. Um and what what is it about the studio that you start to like or starts to interest you as you get, get older and as you use it more and more?
1: Um I mean I have to say first of all that the studio is not really where I'm at home. As as I've started to work, I I work as a live engineer much more Mm. than in the studio. And part of that is also these forces that I'm talking about real life from the Mm. outside, the, the things that shape what you can and can't do. I mean, I don't have a place to make my own studio or the money to equip it. So for me, it has been easier to go the live route, even if we sidestep what I'm interested in for a second. In in that situation, you go on on the road and you're paid to use other people's equipment. You don't actually have to own anything yourself or mm. invest in that way in equipment. So uh, there's that. Um, but and I'm also more interested in live work as well, which I think is related to my work as a performer and composer. Because in live engineering, things are happening. You know, you're you're responding to the situation and it's evolving there's no sort of sitting down thinking of what you're going to write or, or what slowly working out what it is, is going to work better. Or mm. you're, you're, you're in the moment and, and that interests me. Um, so with that said, I, I find studio environments a lot harder to motivate myself in because there's not the constant demand from the audience, from the musicians, mm-hmm. from, you know, from time the time ticking in
0: the yeah. studio
1: um it, so that's one thing i find hard about it is the silence in a studio you know it's, if you yeah. if you really start to listen to what's around you and there's nothing it can really it comes in i can feel my head sort of collapsing in yeah and you and you have to struggle to make your own thoughts heard above that mm. silence i find so one of the things I do before I go into a studio is have a sense of what it is I'm trying to do because if I go in there without that, it's hard for me to create it because of the silence.
0: <laughs> yeah, like you said, it's almost deafening that silence, you know. And when you're when you spend a long time in there, a lot of the time with studios, there's not even any natural light. and no, and, I,
1: and that I think that's affected by the studios I grew up in. And I don't mean grew up in age; I mean when I started and mm. as an engineer. Um those studios in Sark were almost all windowless Yeah, and that can have an effect on your work as well now I know that if I were to make a studio I would need some light or it Mm. would be best for me to have some natural light in it Um, but the the thing about studios as well is that you do have time the thing that doesn't attract me to them is also what's good about them you have time in there and it's about having control over there's there's control in a studio. You yeah. You can try things out and, and undo them. You yeah. can you can really explore the extent of the equipment. There's no one staring at you a lot of the time. If you can find a studio environment where it's just you and the equipment, there's no judgment there bar mm. what's in your own head, you know? Yeah. You can poke that piece of equipment until yeah. you want to stop. And yeah. that is is a real freedom. So yeah. if I do any studio work now and I I'm using those terms really broadly. Like yeah. by by that I might mean if I want to write a soundscape that's going to go with one of my pieces. Um so I, my studio in that sense is set up could be my laptop and my headphones. You know, if yeah. I'm gonna do that, I'll set aside four hours where I'm not gonna be interrupted. Mm-hmm. Cause you need that sense of a lack of pressure, I need that anyway, mm. to be able to work in this environment, mm. to say well it's stretching before me, I've got someone on a of time, and if you can't get four hours, get a half hour, whatever it mm. is, you say to yourself, here's my amount of time and in that time I'm going to explore this aspect
0: absolutely, and
1: keep chipping at it until you've seen all the mm. corners or, or wrinkles of it Um, that's how I do studio work
0: yeah it's so interesting because everything that you said about you know using music technology live is the stuff that gives me nightmares (laughs) Mm -hmm. and everything that you said about using the studio and that privacy and that silence is the stuff that I absolutely love Mm -hmm. and um (laughs) it's so interesting isn't it like I I love that sense of time just you know, rolling in front of you, the the silence, the the void, where you're like, right, what do I make here? And I, th-
1: I think the reason that that for me can be hard is because because there are no boundaries there. You no. know, I, I I need some sort of boundary, otherwise I become upset at when the end is. You know, mm-hmm. if if you're someone who struggles with when things are over or you know to use the dreaded perfectionism mm. or the just even well which one of these ways of processing am I going to use? Sometimes the enormity of what is available to you in a studio is too much for me. Mm. And if you've got any kind of analysis going on or judgment or any kind of head space issues which I have every single day, the studio is not necessarily the place that's going to be forgiven of those, you know, because There's so many choices and so many ways of doing something that you can struggle to actually complete anything. Mm
0: -hmm. You can
1: struggle to decide that you're satisfied with something in the live domain. That is not an issue because it's not your call. You know, Mm -hmm. the audience have come in, the musicians have started, you know, you get it as good as you can until, the axe comes down whereas in the studio it may never come down and all you're left with is your own judgment and that for me is a much scarier place than life Mm. And, and I think all of those internal head things are can grow a lot more in the studio
0: yeah I think that's such a good point and I'm sure there's lots of people who are listening to this and kind of nodding their heads because they know what that's like to have that kind of a perfectionist streak, or um, just that little inner critic—I sometimes call it the music tech gremlins—that come in and tell you, "Oh, you know, you should have done that better," or "That's the wrong thing to use." How come you don't know how to do this yet? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, and that's
1: even before we get to the point where you talk about listening fatigue. Oh, yeah, and that will again be affected by the exact studio that you're in you know Mm. what what level of sound deadness is there Mm. is there a window because if you're if if you're already dealing with all of these choices that you need to make a call on where where is good enough at some point after that you get to the point where actually your your ears are compromised you know you yeah, yeah you're compromised in your ability to even discern that because you've been in there for quite some time so all of those things mean that for me, the studio is a place that I have to actually approach with caution and with mm. with a sense of just knowing how my own head works when it's in there and knowing what limitations are and knowing that at some point, something that you've made is, you don't need to be thinking about good enough. You need to be thinking about, is it a piece of artwork at the end of the day? Mm. And it's not really something... After a point, you need to stop applying the the good, and, good enough or standard or you know. Yeah. If I view it as a piece of artwork, when am I happy enough for it to be finished? Mm-hmm. I've got a lot further with my work now that I've managed to stop viewing it as something with an absolute standard at the end of it. Mm-hmm. And another one of the ways in which I overcome that is if if that's not the part of the artwork I'm interested in doing, it, well then maybe I can find someone else to do that. Because there will be someone who's really interested in in the technical part of, of where that is correct or where it is perfect or where it has the best use yeah. of a certain process. And maybe in those parts, I'm more interested in the creative bit and I can give that technical problem to someone else. Not that I couldn't do it myself. No. I don't, don't want to spend my time doing it. And I've done yeah. that this week, actually, about... Have a piece of work with another artist we got together two years ago uh lara pramuk she's based in berlin um and i knew her for years before but it, it just at this point in, in 2018 i said do you mind if i come over and we spend a day in your studio and we make something again really open with no sort of pressure as to where it was going to go and sure it's to only it's two years later now that we're revisiting it, but we hear some technical issues with the mix, you know, I think I can hear the compression on some of the, the track. And she neither she nor I are really interested in sitting down and revisiting it in a technical way. So we've got someone who we're going to get to a mix it and possibly do some production.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and so it's about knowing at what point in the project you want to maybe get someone else in to do that part for you.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I think um, it's really, really important sometimes to recognise even if you can do something, it doesn't mean you should. And sometimes it's really good to have another person involved in the process because they will stop you when you go into those black holes of trying to get everything perfect and they'll say, it's good enough, we can stop here. that is so useful. Yeah.
1: it's At some point you won't want anyone in the studio with you because you might need to be alone. For the lack yeah. of pressure. At other points, yeah, you want someone there to be the extra ears. Yeah. And again, I'm not talking about a big studio where you have everybody in sitting on a sofa. This the, the translation of this could be, Well, I listen to it on my my computer at home and then I email it to this person who I've never met, who might do some work on it and send it back. I'd pay them for their time, but I might not like it, so it might not mm. get released. And again, yeah. all of the decisions are accompanied by the means to be able to do that at any one time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, I mean, like when I'm thinking about the projects that I've done, like all of my four albums that I've released, I've haven't mastered any of them. The mastering is the part that I've never, never wanted to do. And anytime I've tried to do it, I just feel like, well look, I'm just too close to all of this and I need somebody else to come along and just put an extra shine on it that I can't, I can't give because I just know it too well. I love the mixing absolutely love mixing and that's not to say that you would listen to all of my music and say it's perfect number one perfect doesn't exist but number two I guess I never wanted it or meant or tried to make it perfect
1: if if we're doing lots of different things I I know that I'm not able to spend the same amount of time on certain aspects of this so frankly I'm not the right person to do it properly Mm. because I'm too busy doing four other things so it is about roles and about how people spend their time and
0: and how you want to spend your time. I know for me, I don't know if this is the same for you, Una, or if you've noticed it in other women, but I know for me sometimes I put pressure on myself to do all of the things because otherwise I think people will think I can't do it because I'm a woman.
1: Yeah, I I certainly, this I see this changing in me over time. Um, and gender in this industry is something i'm really interested in and something that i think was sort of a lot more painful at the start because it is that is kind of the situation um when when i felt like i hadn't proved myself either to me or other people in certain areas i find now that the same things happen to me from that point of view but i'm because I know my own worth in certain areas better, then I'm more happy to let that go because yeah. I don't need to prove that every day.
0: Mm-hmm. At the
1: start, I had more of a need to. It was the case that I didn't know if I could do it or not. And so you don't want a misplaced confidence either. I think yeah. that's important. That was important for me personally to work out because I think you were asking me about one of the. biggest myths
0: yeah I I wanted to talk today about um what do you think are you know at least one or even more if you've got them biggest myths that um hold women back from just experimenting and getting started with music technology and recording and all those kinds of things yeah it does relate a bit to that
1: um in that at this I think it's confidence Mm. and and it's it's kind of hard because confidence isn't something you can just magic either. And I really wouldn't suggest that anyone do.
0: Yeah.
1: But what I learned was that at the start, there's a, there's a need I find to project that you know what it is you're talking about, you know, what, how to do things and you know how to use equipment and it comes, it, comes for, it happens for a number of different reasons. Like because the industry is so competitive it's almost like there's not time for uncertainty. Mm-hmm. If you have three people in front of you and one of them looks a bit wobbly, well, you you no one has the time or the money in this industry to, to check if that person does know or doesn't yeah. know. So people have evolved to immediately present a face of confidence and knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that when I started out that everyone seemed to know more than me. And it was only as I went on that I realized that that was the face that they presented. There was definitely a situation where they would present as if they knew, and they would they would make up the slack later. Absolutely. As long as they got the tick box, as long as they got the gig, they'd go home and make up. They'd they'd make up the time, or they'd 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 get back that knowledge that they present the face and then make sure they lived up to it later. Mm. Nope present the face and and worry about the substance later. And I didn't realize people were doing that. And I don't blame them either. Like it it happened because they had to be like that. But it disproportionately affects certain groups of people, women, minorities, you know. And so it was only when I realized that a lot of the time people are presenting something that isn't necessarily as solid as it looks. And you Once you realise that, it's not that you decide that it's okay, you can just run about the place, not actually putting in the time of the substance, but it does does fix your head Mm -hmm. because it means that you think, actually, it's okay if I don't know because maybe they don't know and maybe that's just how they're presenting. Mm -hmm. Now, I am much happier to say I don't know, but that's because I have the time and the experience behind me to give me the luxury of being able to stay, I don't know, and still survive it. Yeah. At the time, at the very start, I joined in as a little and knew I would psych myself up to present more of a confident face than I was feeling. Mm. And I, I remember a lot of my early live gigs where I would be in the hotel room on the morning of the gig. I learned very quickly that it is not the band's problem if you're nervous. Yeah. And so I wouldn't, even though they were the only, the the five band members were the only friends I had at the festival. It's not their problem. They're at work and they don't want to hear that their engineer's really nervous that morning. Mm -hmm. So I would leave the hotel room and I remember vividly putting one foot in front of the other, forcing myself to walk to the venue. Because as soon as I got in the door of the venue, I had no choice. Like there was a team of people there and I had to react, you know, follow one step after another, one thing after another, get through the sound check. get through the gig. Once I hit the venue, I knew things would roll on, come hell or high water, and I would get through it. And at 1 a.m. when I had a beer in my hand, that was going to be the end of the day. But the steps to the venue, that was the point at which I had to literally put my foot, one foot in front of the other. So no one was going to get me to the venue, and no one was going to stop me if I ran away. So <laughs> those walks to the venue were always the parts where I was going this is when you're going to make or break us in it get to the venue and it'll run from there yeah. but those confidences
0: that that confidence you had to portray it's incredible though cuz like knowing you una I, I remember when i did my ma at Sark, you were the studio assistant and yeah. i would never have thought that you would feel like that going to a gig to do live sound you know i and it's just so amazing how we kind of like you say we present a picture of ourselves um, because we have to we all do this all the time in lots of different ways um, and yeah it's just amazing it, it's so liberating like you say when you kind of hear that other people actually have all those internal fears and um, all that negative talk going on and um, there's very few people that don't experience that.
1: At the same time it was true you know on those early gigs that I was going to I didn't know what I know now yeah so I was under the gig with a lack of experience, mm-hmm. and I think that's what made it even more horrifying for me because it's not like i it's it wasn't all imposter syndrome or all at when you're starting out you don't know, yeah. and I think that's really important to remember too and um, mm-hmm. but I also learned that it it wasn't gonna serve me to be i I don't mind being honest, and I really think it's so important in the music industry that people are as real as they can yeah be, with all of the caveats of of you can, you're only as real as you know you, you need to be in a position where mm-hmm. you can afford to be real yeah but so I try to to be there, but I learned on two levels that there there's two reasons where you you need to hide this one is for the band. Because as a musician myself, I was thinking they're waking it up to go to a festival to get on a stage. The last thing they want to think is that I'm panicking because I'm all they have, you know, mm. in a way. So I learned that. I learned for the band that I had to take that, otherwise I was putting it on them, from a musician's point of view. And the second thing I learned was that if I don't put this face on, someone else is gonna is gonna bite it and make it worse. And mm. I learned that when I was. I was on a stage one time early in the sound check day, and I was trying to keep in my head 26 channels and where to put them. And I hadn't been sent that in advance, and I was working out a a sound plot in real time. And the studio, the the, in-house engineer, sometimes you would be balancing this as well. The in-house engineer was a bit irritated for many, many reasons that I don't even know how to start to describe it could have been that they wanted to be the engineer it could have been mm. that you were a woman younger mm. than them it could have been that they just didn't like you whatever the reason yeah there wasn't a great vibe there
0: and someone didn't bring want... them their coffee that day yeah, who yeah.
1: Knows. <laughs> anyway, <he laughs> yeah came up we said uh how many 58s do you want and i was still trying to sm58s vocal mix mm. and i was still trying to work out what what number of channels i had where they were supposed to be so I was sort of wandering around the stage, probably looking completely distracted. And he says, how many 58s? And I said, uh, four or five, because I was trying to think, well, I need three vocals and then two, but I'm going to use two of them for here. Oh, but I don't have an extra mic for that, so I might need a substitute in a 58. Anyway, I says four or five. And he went, four or five? And I thought, wow, he he's calling me on this. He's mm-hmm. calling me on. He's he's not okay with the fact that I haven't made that decision yet, and what's more, he's translating it into not that I'm working through a complicated situation in real time, but that I don't know the answer. Yeah, that's what he focused on, and at that moment, I went seeing this scenario. It's better that I confidently say five, or confidently say four, than yeah. communicate any sort of uh, any sort of uncertainty to him. Uncertainty there did not make me uh, a, an a, a honest human that was interacting with him on a, on a human to human level. It made me someone his senior who who didn't know what they were doing. Yeah, and that whatever that makes him think, I don't mind. But it made my job harder because mm-hmm. suddenly I had someone who didn't respect me and wasn't going to help me. Yeah, and at that point I realised uh, that's the part where to project confidence. Is, is imperative for the run of the gig. Mm. So yeah. I've learned to that sometimes you need to project more confidence than you, you feel, but at other times then you shouldn't. And I've learned that later on where now that I know a lot more, I'm more confident in my own work because simply through time, just because mm-hmm. I've been working at it for 10 more years now, now I have the luxury of saying, I don't know if it's four mics or five. Yeah. Give me one second. I'm working this out. That's why I don't know. Absolutely. But I now have that presence of mind. And you know why yeah. I have the presence of mind? Because the gremlin, like you say, is not there. Mm-hmm. There's not that one going, you don't know. You're shitting yourself. Yeah. What are you going to do? That one is silenced and that one is silenced
0: just through years of
1: experience.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's th- that gremlin is always saying, you know, if you were a better engineer, you would know this by now. And then when you have that experience, you're like, no, there's really brilliant engineers that I've watched and they don't know these things in the spare yeah. of the moment. Or there's brilliant in-house engineers who actually want to help you rather than trip you up and look at all your weaknesses. Yeah. And you get that experience. I'm also thinking of the
1: person listening to this now who's going, oh, that's really useful. So what do I do if I don't have 10 years experience? Yeah. That's very irritating, (laughs) right? And and I I can happily answer that because I have Mm. been that person too. Wonderful. And and the way that I I fixed this when I didn't have the experience was that I tried to tick off everything that I could in the scenario. Mm. And after that, I gave myself a break. So one example was that if I had a gig the next day in a venue that I didn't know and I was able to find out what the make of the desk was and I didn't know how to work that desk, well, I was only going to have 10, 15 minutes in sound check to get the grips with it. So I would try to think, well, that's a reality I can't change. Mm-hmm. But what I can change is I can look around in Belfast for a club that might have the same desk. And I would go down there at closing time at like midnight or one in the morning and say to them when they were cleaning up, can I look at your desk? They'd be calling cables or moving their speakers at the end of the night. Can I have 10 minutes on that desk? And that would just give me a wee head start. And it didn't That's give me great. much of a head start. It was only, I would arrive at Soundcheck then in the new venue, and I didn't really know much more about the mm. desk than I had if I hadn't done that. But what it did do is it enabled my psychology to say, here I am in a terrifying situation. I've done what I could so Mm. it stopped the reproach, Absolutely, stopped the person in me reproaching me for not trying and once you quiet those voices that are really not helping you, Mm. they're not actually getting the job done, Mm. I was able to silence those by making some effort towards Mm. them and then they shut up. Yeah, I
0: love that Una, I love that idea that you can kind of focus on what the things that you can do to prepare the things that you can do to understand what's going on better but then you know there will be things you can't do and there will be things that just will take time for you to master or for you to understand but it means that then when you get in those situations where you're put on the spot or maybe even you're on your own in your studio and you just can't work something out you can always know well look I've done everything I can do And that's all I can do. And that's such a better feeling than, oh, if you were a better person, blah, blah, blah. You know, what are the things I can do here that can prepare me a bit more or can just widen my knowledge a bit more? And I know that I've made some effort here. It's not that I'm a crap human. It's just that this will take time. And there will be,
1: even after you've done all that, there will still be, you know, there have still been times where, someone has still thought you don't know enough you're Absolutely. not good enough and I, and I let those people walk away I, I, it has been one of the most it's been very annoying for me to realize in life that if you carry on if you try your best and to be on good terms with people and to there are still some people that don't actually think well of you and
0: isn't that such a horrible hard a lesson
1: yeah it really is. Yeah. it it's most frustrating whenever you've done something where you know that you could have done it better because yeah. that happens to you know where you just you were better than that mm-hmm. and they leave with an impression uh, and you just have to let those things go does that then make you stop yourself doing your good work for the rest of the time or does it do you just let that go mm-hmm. and you have to let them go because the bigger picture is whether it enables you to work more or whether it cripples you. Yeah. And you must not let these things cripple you for long. You learn what you can and you move on. Because yeah. we are working in art and music and you need to remember that at some point there there's not uh there's not it's not life or death, you know. It's if it's stopping you work, you it's it's too much. Your your level of judgment is too much there. Because you're not doing anything in
0: that scenario. I, I totally agree. I think that you've put it so well, Una, that, you know, there will be people, even when you try your best to be the most confident, the most together, the most talented, the most charming, there will still be people that can make you feel like shit and yep. um and what do you do with that you know do you listen to that do you let that censor what you make for the rest of your career do you stop making work or do you keep going and just understand that there will always be people that push your buttons and there will always be people that get pushed by you even if you don't mean to do anything
1: yeah and sometimes um, those people are yourself too yeah you know, i still have days where my level of fear of of failure Will stop me from starting. There are several projects at the minute, creative projects, where I still have to get over a hump of 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 fear of failure, of of choice of well which which of the big range of tech equipment or, or processing or, or which which of them do I use, you know. And I, I think one of the things that helps me there is to have a deadline of some kind, mm. to have Uh, someone else who might be working alongside you on something else where you say I'm going to check in in a week and I'm going to tell you what I've done because if you don't have a deadline sometimes I don't even start and Mm. that is really helpful to have
0: yeah so really kind of keeping yourself accountable making people getting people involved so you can say look I'm going to do this by this date and I know I need to do it by this date because otherwise that person can't do their bit
1: yeah Yeah, but but be gentle with yourself as well you know some days you just you're done (laughs) yeah
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's it goes back to that kind of ear fatigue as well, doesn't it? Where there will be days where even if it's not about your ear, it's just about your brain, that your brain is not going to make any good decisions anymore. And your brain needs you it's to go of off.
1: None of us are machines.
0: No, no, absolutely not. And your brain is saying, look, go downstairs, make a cup of tea and eat a chocolate brownie. And chill the F out. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay, cool. Well, what I'd like to do is just... Um, thinking about after your MA, then you then you went on and did a PhD at Sark, didn't you? After you did spend um how many years was it being the studio assistant at Sark, Una? I think it was three. Three years. Uh, from
1: 2006, 7 to 2010. Yeah. And then and then I I stopped and did a PhD. I I was finding that um work at SARC was so intense there was a lot to do and I always thought that I would spend the nine to five being a studio assistant and in the evenings I would be able to do my own creative work and I was just so exhausted after anyone who works a full-time job yeah and I used to do artwork in the evenings it's very hard really hard and and that again may not have been possible for me to do but uh I was able to to do a PhD at Sark and I Um, there was a funding opportunity there which I applied for and got and so I was able to to do a PhD which for me was a brilliant few years it was a massive pay cut (laughs) but (laughs) it was something that I felt I needed to do because I'd spent three years where it was great I had an income but um I wasn't getting my creative work done and that's great for a while but maybe at some point you you realise that that is more important than you know, I was I was still able to have somewhat of an income as a student, but not not the same. Um, yeah, but, uh, but it's more important for me to do that and get my creative work done than not.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah, brilliant. And since so I finished the PhD, I did a year and a bit as a freelance musician, artist, uh, composer, sound engineer. So I was doing all of those things um and, and and managed to make a living from combination of all four. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did a three year research fellowship. So I went back to academia again. And you know this is partly because I mean I'm, I'm very interested in research work and I'm someone who works in practice based areas of research. So mm-hmm. I was a lot of the research is, has space for creativity in it. Um, so I did a three-year research fellowship in music at Cambridge. So that was an academic research position um, from 2016 to n- 19. And now I am working as a freelance musician engineer again. Although I say that, but in this time of lockdown, um, yeah. it's all so much alone and at home. <laughs> yeah,
0: yes, yeah, so it's a very strange time at the moment for sure so just thinking about um the projects that kind of emerged from your work at SARC and then in your fellowship as well and um, what what was that so i know that you had fair play
1: um yeah that came up um my research work for the phd was on new technologies and experimental practices in contemporary Irish traditional music so i i looked at improvisation and traditional music um, experimentalism how it related to the um, contemporary experimental music from the 1960s on Um, and then i design interfaces for performance of new traditional music with electronics and so that that's what i did as as for my phd and after that i continued that work about um the combination of technology and traditional music for the research fellowship but during that time i wrote a piece about um gender in Irish traditional music because it is an area of the music industry like so many others that where women are disproportionately um, they're they're not represented. And after that piece of music, it was around the same time that other traditional musicians were questioning this idea of the gender balance in traditional music. So uh, we jointly founded a movement called Fair Play, which ended up being really a busy year um, mm. it was international and the academic research from that is ongoing so I have a paper and I'm co-editing a journal on uh, women in traditional and folk music this year.
0: So interesting um, and, and I guess when you get into the territory of um, experimental electronic Irish traditional music then you're really niching down. <laughs> and I'm sure that, I, well, I know, but I mean, what's the gender balance when you get into that niche, Una? Do you know, I haven't really looked, but just off the top of my head, I, I it,
1: um, yeah, there's there's not a lot going on with traditional music and electronics compared to the wider traditional music scene. Mm. Um, and within that, yeah, there aren't very many women yet, but it's all evolving.
0: Yeah. And just at the moment, what are the kind of ideas or concepts that you're interested in when it comes to your work? I mean, I should say, if people are listening to this and they have not heard Una's 2018 album, Four, you need to go and listen to it because it's absolutely beautiful and mesmerising. And I went to see your performance in Belfast. I think it was at... um, oh. Oh, accidental theatre. Um, and it was incredible. It was and it's just so it was so amazing because it was just you up on stage, but the the sounds and the textures that you were making um with the harp and the live electronics were just beautiful. And so I really thoroughly recommend Una's album. Um, but what what are the kind of concepts and ideas and areas of experimentation you're interested in right now?
1: Well, I, I love looking at live performance with electronics. And I am trained as a traditional harp player, so that's the real core of of the work. I've I've been writing for Harp and Electronics for um, years now, and recently I wanted to write for other traditional musicians and electronics. So my project Interact, which I did at the National Concert Hall in Dublin in February, it's a suite of 12 pieces of music for other traditional musicians as soloists with electronics. So the first six I've already done and I'm going to be working on the next six. Um, there's a range of different types of interaction there. So it really depends on the musician themselves and what they're interested in as well as what I am. So um, some of the people were interested in using the electronics themselves. Some of them preferred me to set up a system whereby they played their instrument and the electronics happened. Where they didn't have to actually action them, um, so that's a dialogue as well with the performer. I, I write those pieces with a particular performer in mind. And then Creatively as well, I'm just I'm interested in things I don't know about, so I'm looking at writing for ensembles I don't normally work with. Um, I went from traditional music. I was did some classical training as a child. But um, most of my expertise is in traditional and experimental music. So at the minute, I'm working on a piece for a classical ensemble, which is really interesting for me because it's not uh, a genre I normally work in. So um, I like to look at gaps in what
0: I do and try to move out towards them. Well, Una, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been so interesting. There's a couple of things I just want to make sure that we cover before we finish. Um, Number one is if people want to find out about your music and what you're doing, where can they go?
1: Um, I have a website. It's just my name, unamonaghan.com. I tend to find it easier to be in touch on Twitter and Instagram because they're quicker. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So that would be it. It's una underscore pics for Instagram and una underscore music for Twitter.
0: Wonderful. Okay, great. And then the second thing is, we've talked a lot about mindset stuff, like um, things that hold you back psychologically. Um, What would be your biggest tip for any women or girls listening to this who have a hankering to get get themselves into music technology in some way, just to start using it because they know that it's going to be, you know, useful or creative? What would be your biggest tip for getting started?
1: The head thing is is huge for me. Um, I, I would say if that's what you're fighting with, to sit down and write down what it is, is stopping you. Because it may be outside of yourself, but it may also be inside yourself. And with me, it's very often that, it won't, that the thing I make won't be good enough or that there's another version of the thing I make out there that would be better. And these are, for me, I, it takes me quite a short amount of time to realize that those are, they're not going to get the work made. Mm. And so I think a, a deadline, some sort of deadline to, to start, any of the big things I've learned how to do have always been with a deadline. So Max MSP is a software uh, programming environment for u- using live electronics. And I, I find when I'm talking to people that it's something people struggle to get into, to get to grips with. Mm. And the only reason I did was because I had a project that I needed to do. And once you have a goal, it, you're not just, you know, dipping into the language like a like a, a speech-based language. Learning a language is the same. If you have a point where you need to be able to speak it, and so you need to be able to code in it for your project, then it helps you to start and it helps you to get over that um gives you some momentum and mm-hmm. this can be something kind of small i remember um at the very start just hosting some concerts in my house and this was exactly for that reason to do with the head and you realize that a lot of the reasons you didn't finish off pieces of artwork was because there wasn't a concert or there wasn't some way to perform them mm. but if there was a way to perform them it was probably the stakes were too high and you were too terrified so you'd do something safe so I ended up just putting on little concerts in my house and sure you performed at the yeah, Isabel. that's it, right quite, quite music night you were one of the earliest performers at yeah them. and it you just get a few people around you know bill it as a party and yeah. you then work towards that presentation of it and it's something small for yourself mm-hmm. in your artwork, a small milestone to get you past where you want to be. And it's just that thing about putting one foot in front of the other to get to the venue.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: Where where is your wall? Where is the hump you have to get over? And and what are the steps you need to take? And don't if you've picked one and it's too big, you'll say no because you won't start. Pick a smaller one. Mm. You know, with mm. the house concerts, it's like do maybe maybe your thing is that you want to be able to put up a PA system. Get a little small one, borrow it from somewhere, put it up in your house, learn how to put that up, yeah, and then have everyone round for a glass of wine, play one tune, and that's yeah, fun. I love that because you've learned it, you you know how to do that, yeah, you can only build on the tiny things you've already done.
0: Yeah, and I think that's such a good tip because you're you're showing how you could learn stuff through it being kind of fun, you know, like you having your mates round and doing a gig and that's quite fun and you will get to have a glass of wine on a Friday night and you'll get to play a little, you know, piece that you're working on and you've also happened to have learnt how to put a PA up, for example, or you maybe also yeah. happened to I have used learnt...
1: To go out. I used to go out in front of the people and say the reason you're all in my house with your glasses of wine tonight is because I needed to make this wee piece of music and I needed to make it in an environment that wasn't frightening for me. Bear with me audience, listen to this. And when you think about it, they're all sitting around there on a Friday night, having a cup of tea or whatever it is. What else would they be doing? And that takes the pressure off you. Yeah. And the same thing is the next day you've presented your piece And you're able to build on that. The next time you can do it to strangers, the next time you can Mm -hmm. do it to 10 more people. Work out what your steps are that you need to put one foot in front of the other. And if you need to take away pressure to enable you to put those foods in front of the other, you do that. And my thing is, if the pressure of a real audience is going to make me not do that, well, then get a fake audience. Mm. The The head issue is real. Yeah, And there's no point in sitting thinking, I wish it wasn't there,
0: because
1: it is. And the difference is, are you going to say, well, it's there, so I can't do it? Are you going to say, well, it's there, so I'm going to get over it? Mm. And we're looking at all the people we perceive as being successful and thinking that they don't have it. And maybe they don't. How does that change your situation? Maybe they don't, but maybe they do and they're not telling you. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Just like those people that you noticed at the beginning of your career who were putting on a front because they had to. They had to look like they were together.
1: And I do it now myself for the reasons I've explained. Mm -hmm. But what I won't do is pretend that I don't. If someone comes to me and says, you look so confident, I'll say, here are three reasons when I'm not. Mm -hmm. Here is why you see me me as confident. It does not cost anything really to say, what's real Mm -hmm. now it it does sometimes at a certain at other points where where if I still need to get the
0: job you know and the person doesn't know me (laughs) yeah 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 there's a time and a place yeah
1: yeah there's a time and a place but I do think that our industry in general would benefit from a
0: lot more honesty Mm. I agree and I think that's one of the reasons there's so many issues with mental health in music is that yeah. you do feel that pressure all the time to just put this front on.
1: I'm seeing it right now during this period of lockdown for, for mm. the coronavirus. I'm seeing a lot of musicians who are watching what is essentially a tiny piece, a tiny snapshot of our industry has been blown up to be all our industry. Yeah. What used to go out online is now everything. Yeah, And there are people looking at that, at the online sharing and the online productivity, and they're they're equating that with what is our whole music industry. And I have to keep saying to those people that is not all there is. So don't pit yourself against that if that's not
0: what you do. So just to be clear, okay. Una, you're talking about the musicians that are really nailing their live video streaming, yes. and you know, and, and maybe they've already been doing it a long time, and they just happen to be catching this tailwind, or maybe they've like jumped on it and they're doing well and there's other musicians looking at them and being like oh crap how can i compete with that
1: yeah and and also that maybe that is where their creativity lies maybe you know maybe that that artists um work and interest is in this medium mm. i just and i've no issue with that at all i just feel for the people who are watching this online explosion in in productivity and creativity and it's not necessarily where their interest talent or expertise lies and i worry for those people who are struggling right now because the fact that the fact of the matter is there's there may not be anywhere for their particular flavor of creativity to go right now and i hope that they can conserve it until there is a time when it is available again because the online uh presence at the minute is quite damaging for people who for whom it doesn't serve
0: yeah yeah no I, I totally I totally get that and I think um there's always these waves and these kind of changes in the industry and then it c- can be hard to get your head around where you fit in that um yeah. but I, th- I mean what about yourself do you live stream at the moment or are you not, not doing at the that
1: moment, no um I'm not and I, I've been I've been invited. See the the other thing about this is that arts organisations who can no longer put on shows live, are also doing this beautiful thing where they are they're trying to um, support their artists in the, in the way that they can. So arts organisations, when they were stopped from running live gigs, then turned to say, well, how can we use our funding and our support to support artists online? So I, they're doing great work. Mm. to change how they can support us so when they come to you and invite you to take part in something that's online I thought it was important to support that yeah there's an interesting thing there about who do they come to and who do they invite and Mm. how how are those spaces curated Mm -hmm. so that's that's a difficult question um so there have been one or two situations where I've uh, agreed to Um, contribute to to, uh, an online series when I've been asked so I'm working on two of them at the moment Mm -hmm. but in terms of just getting up every day and putting something out I'm I'm not doing that but again I feel lucky in that I have some creative projects that are writing projects Mm -hmm. that I hope will be realized later on maybe Mm -hmm. in a year or towards the end of the year so I feel like I can work on that now um, yeah. Of course, things aren't ideal. Like there's a restriction in spaces, and then if you're isolating with several other people, you can't be using up whole areas mm. of the house or making noise or setting mm. up equipment. Or so it's difficult. But I'm um, I feel lucky, um, mm. and I'm contributing to some of the online things that I've been invited to. But I'm also trying to be mindful of how all of this noise online is affecting other people other other creative Mm. people
0: yeah cool well um thank you so much it's been so interesting and um thanks for all the work you're doing on this scheme it's wonderful oh uh, thank you we're all grateful oh thank you Ina no it's a pleasure I cannot say how refreshing it is to speak about imposter syndrome self-doubt And the psychological mind games we all play with ourselves, both as emerging and established artists, with someone who is so respected in her field. Now, if you're curious about Una and her work, go to her website, which is www.unamonaghan.com. That's unamonaghan.com. And also check out her beautiful debut album, Four, which is so, so worth a listen. I will pop the link to those in the show notes. Now, in next week's episode, we're rolling up our sleeves here on the podcast and getting a little more practical, specifically breaking down how you can start recording your music yourself within a budget of just £100. Yep, yeah, this is for anyone listening who is feeling inspired and excited by all the great guests we've had on the GTK podcast so far, but maybe you're feeling doubtful that you can stretch to a home recording setup. I promise we are skipping past any gear that isn't entirely essential and you'll also pick up some great free techniques that you can use right now at home to make recordings that you're truly truly proud of. I can't wait to dive into all of this and more next week. I'll catch you in the next episode. So how do you like that episode dear listener? If you loved it and you know someone else who would love it too, be a good friend and share it with them. Go on. Spread the girls' twiddling knobs love.